when people say, how do you define kindness? I think defining kindness is difficult. You just know when somebody's kind. You also know when somebody's unkind. And I think it's the most powerful tool we have to actually change our lives. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018, in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. It seemed only sensible that we launch this podcast with the woman who launched the Women of the Future initiative herself, the one and only Pinky Lilani. Nusrat Mahboob Lilani, known as Pinky, is an author, motivational speaker, food expert and women's advocate. Founder and chair of several awards recognising influential women and leaders, including the annual Women of the Future Awards and the Asian Women of Achievement Awards. She was appointed an OBE in 2007 for services to charity and a CBE in 2015 for services to women in business. She's been named on BBC Radio 4's Women's Hour Power List, as well as one of the 30 most powerful Muslim women in Britain by The Times and Emmel magazine. She is also now the first guest on our brand new podcast. I was very lucky I was born into a very loving, caring and a very privileged family in Calcutta. And I went to an Irish convent where my mother had been. And Calcutta was... Fairly like a paradise, I think, on earth. It was one of those towns that the British had come to and it was beautifully laid out. Uh, and it was um, a very, very happy upbringing. So, I, you know, we used to go to the club to swim and, and lots of parties because, you know, in India everybody entertains and so we were constantly having parties or going to parties. Um, had lots of really good friends. So it was a very happy childhood, full of, of sunshine and, um, you know, going on family holidays with cousins and meeting up people, so it's very people-oriented. Did you have brothers and sisters? Or? I do. I have an a older sister and a younger brother, and I'm very close to both of them. How did they call you Pinky? How did that come about? Was it a nickname? A nickname or? Um, it's a very common nickname in India, and I think anybody who's slightly pinkish or, you know, kind of lighter than the general population is often referred to as Pinky. They have these strange nicknames, and I know I'm often asked that, and so many people that I know are actually nicknamed Pinky. In fact, uh, the uh, ex-Prime Minister of Pakistan, Benazir Bhutto, her nickname was Pinky Bhutto. Yeah. So it's very, it's not, you know, it's really, really quite common. <laughs> so your, your family had been in the country for a very long time? Yes, my family were from uh, Bombay and Calcutta, and then my grandfather had moved to Calcutta, where my mother was born, and then my father came there. So they were quite well established in mm. Calcutta. You studied in India, didn't you? So I did. how, how did you come to England? Uh, well, I did my um, education, my schooling in Calcutta, then went on to do my um, degree and then did a postgraduate. Mm-hmm. And then I actually had, I guess, a semi-arranged marriage okay. where I met my husband who was visiting from the UK and his mother was very keen he marry a good Indian girl. He was living in the UK and I think she was afraid that he may go off track. He had been married <laughs> before to a Dutch girl and that hadn't worked. 
And so my husband met me and we got married in three weeks. So he obviously had done no due diligence whatsoever because <laughs> he thought he'd got this good wife who could cook and I'd never been inside the kitchen because we had an amazing chef in our house in Calcutta. How did you feel about the arranged marriage? Did you like him? I mean, was it a good thing? It wasn't totally arranged in the fact that I did have a say, so I did yeah. meet him. There are arranged marriages in India where you don't even meet the person and you don't have a say, the parents mm-hmm. arrange everything. I did meet him, I wasn't sure, and I was told you can't keep meeting him. You can just meet him a couple of times, that's it, because your reputation will be ruined if you keep trying to see a guy and not right. making up your mind. And so I did like him, but I wasn't really totally sure. Um, but actually took a huge leap of faith and said yes, mm. because it sounded quite interesting to be coming <laughs> to the UK. It was very exciting at that point of my life. And I've never looked back. So he was based in the UK, so the move was to go back with him to the UK to, to be married and Absolutely. have a family. He was, he was a chartered accountant who was working in the UK. And so we got married very quickly and he had to come back. And so I went back to Calcutta where I lived, but we got married in Bombay and I packed up my meagre belongings and came with two suitcases to England wow. uh, and it was very exciting. I came in absolutely the depth of winter and I'd never ever been in temperatures below 10 degrees so it was like minus one. Wow. Um, but I was really quite excited that day, I'd never seen snow in my life and it was very exciting to come. So it was more excitement than fearful. It wasn't, you know, you went. How old were you? I was twenty-three then. That's quite young. So I, yeah, no, I wasn't scared at all. I wasn't fearful. I wasn't even worried that I was leaving my entire family behind because I came here. I was very excited. We'd learned so much about England when we were growing up in mm. school, and so um, no, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of curiosity, a lot of oh, I'm going to do this for the first time kind of thing, and that was really exciting. Good. And you said when you first met your husband that you couldn't cook, but cookery became one of your biggest passions, didn't it? Absolutely. I love eating and I love inviting people over. Yeah. So I think you have to know how to cook uh, mm. if you don't have a retinue of servants, which I had nobody to help. And so I learned to cook very badly at first. But every time I went back to India, I would go into the kitchen with our cook and ask him for some tips. So I built up my repertoire of dishes that I used to do and went on then after about 10 years of entertaining people, taking the courage to ask people over and making sure I got it right. And I think people love being invited to people's mm. homes. So yeah. I think what you cook is actually irrelevant at some stage. But of course, if you can cook a wonderful meal and have interesting people, it's a really great formula for making friends. So I started inviting lots of people, mums who I'd meet outside the school, because I wasn't working at that time, very much a yummy mummy, so I'd be standing outside the school wanting to talk to anyone mm. who'd want to talk to me. I still do that. And um, <laughs> so I, and one day somebody asked me if I would teach um, Indian cookery to adults, and that's how my career in cookery started. Okay, and you, so obviously you specialised in Indian food, that was your... Well, that was the cookery I knew best, Mm. but I cook all kinds of food. I love cooking, so now I can cook, you know, Italian, Chinese, Malaysian, whatever. But that time I just stuck to Indian because I felt I had an advantage. And I mean, I've had stories, because obviously you've written some cookery books, haven't you? You've gone on to do that. I, I had a story about you walking into a bookshop and wanting them to take your book on and you actually started to cook there or something. Is that right? Or is yeah, that yeah that's right. <laughs> I wanted to sell. I didn't realise I'd have these thousands of copies and how was I going to get rid of them? I, you know, I hadn't visualised that much. Yeah. I thought, oh, I know so many people, I'll sell the books, but you know, I don't know thousands of people. And so of not having sold any more than 50 
I didn't have a publisher, so I was ringing up the cookery shops. Um, well, no, they weren't cookery shops, sorry. I was ringing up the bookshop and saying, will you stock my book? And then they actually, one of them felt quite sorry for me because of the desperation of my voice. And I said, look, if I bring my books and I cook some spicy Bombay potatoes and my electric wok, I can do a demo, will you let me sell my books? And they said, fine. So I was cooking in, in the shop and the smell of the garlic got people to come and saw how easy it was and they would buy the book. <laughs> Where was this? Where was the bookshop? The first bookshop was in Tottenham Court Road. Oh, wow. And then after that, I went all over every bookshop because I went up north to, I remember, to Bakewell and I was travelling to anywhere where Waterstones and Swiss Cottage, I was everywhere. Once I got it right in one place, it mm. becomes so much easier. So even Selfridges... Um, I had done a demonstration at Harrods, and so after a while it becomes simpler, you know how to sell it. Was it word of mouth? People just thought, this is brilliant, we need to get her in Harrods, Selfridges, we need to, you know... Were you still going out and trying to find the way? No, I was bringing up people, because I think, yes, after a while it does, people do recommend you, but also, um, you know, luck plays such a big part in everything you do, Mm. so I remember the uh, journalist from the Times, two section, came and had a session of cookery with me and then wrote an amazing article about how wonderful um, my cookery and my book was. And so then he actually put in the paper that if you want a copy of the book, write into this address with your cheque. So I got like 500 cheques in the post in the next 10, 12 days. And so I started sending out the books like that. So it it became very interesting. I didn't realise how creative one had to be and could be Mm. um, to get something out into the market. So I I did, in a way, I had some formal training in marketing, but I I think it was very intuitive. Mm. Obviously, cookery is one part of what you do, but there's so many other parts to your life. And obviously, you came as a very young woman. You you obviously got two boys as well. Did you have them quite early on? Yes, I had my first son a year and a half after coming here, so I had both the boys by the time I was 26. So what would you say is your job? Or is it more of a career? You know, you've learned a skill set and you've kind of... Actually, I'm very it, very good question, yeah. what is my job? I really now see my job as a catalyst for involving people to meet each other, mm. to helping them change the trajectory that they're on by inspiring them, by giving them role models, by showing them what can be done, that nothing, nothing is impossible. It also really matches what I enjoy best, and I enjoy people best. And so really what I do just fits in. Okay. This is a question I'm going to ask everyone on this podcast. It's uh, who or what would you say gave you your first big career break? What was that moment that you thought, oh, thank you, this is going to really help me? Very good point. It's very hard to identify one, but I think, you know, it was a cumulative effect of some media coverage. So when, you know, the person from the Times wrote about me, it was such a good Mm. magazine or, you know, newspaper to have something about you in. And then the Evening Standard cookery writer, Lindsay Perham, I remember she published one of my recipes and wrote about it and I didn't even know she was doing it suddenly I saw it in the evening standard and that gives you kind of credibility and I think another point was when Sherry Blair actually was the Prime Minister's wife and we invited her to come to the Asian Women of Achievements Award to the inaugural award in 1999 and she actually said yes and I think that kind of changed the trajectory of Mm. what I was doing. 
What inspired you to set, set up your awards programmes? Because as you say, the first one was the Asian Women of Achievement Awards. What inspired me was the fact I wanted to do something for women. I didn't know what it was going to be. But I just thought, why don't I set up this award programme? Mm. You know, Indian women, Asian women are subjected to so many stereotypes. Yeah. And they can be quite insular. And I wanted to show the world that we have some amazing role model stories. They're not to form in the way they're not just working at home and frying the onion budgers mm. and walking two steps behind their husbands. And so it was very much a vague thought that I suddenly translated into making into an event. Okay. And um, we're very lucky. I mean, firstly, I had no idea how you organise an event and, you know, how you do these things. But I had been on several charity committees, so I had an idea in some ways how you go to people and ask them. And so really it was so many people that I knew who helped me. Mm. And after that first award we held in 1999 where Sherry Blair came um, and we had some really interesting nominations which we actually got by going and almost cajoling people to enter. Right. Because, they, you know, there are two things. People, when there's something new, they're interested. But then they also want to watch and see is this going to be worthwhile. Mm. So it's really a chicken and egg situation yeah. because it's very hard to become known and to do something new because people are waiting to watch see how you grow yeah but you can't grow unless they give you some support Absolutely. so i was very grateful for the fact that sheree came and she thought it was wonderful and we managed to get into the times the next day a big picture of her so i think you know it what made me really determined to do something was the people i met were so interesting and i thought how do i sustain this yeah I think also the, the categories are so varied, aren't they? Like you were saying, you, Indian women get, or Asian women get put into a stereotype, but you're looking at construction, you're looking at entrepreneurship, you're looking at media, looking at all the STEM categories. Yeah. Was that key in what you were doing, that you wanted it to be quite diverse to just illustrate Absolutely, I think um, definitely wanted to, I think we started off with only five or six categories because we didn't want to overextend ourselves and not find people in the category. And then actually it grew very organically. So, you know, we realised that really in the last 20 years so much has changed. So mm. where we never had technology and digital media 20 years yeah, ago yeah. in that way. I think we're very proactive. We watch what's happening and then say, let's really bring this in. Yeah, that's good. I mean, we've touched on this already. You're famous for getting people of influence to say yes to you. We've said Cherie Blair, but also the Countess of Wessex, Theresa May, Miriam Gonzalez, John Burkow, to name a few. Is there a particular knack, or is it just a huge dose of your own Pinky Lalani persistence? <laughs> how do you do it? How do you do it? I'm always kind of thinking. It's not really true. There are people who say no to me, but I think, you know, it's, nice, it's a nice myth and I let it kind of grow. Um, but no, I think it's just being yourself. And I think if people think you're doing something because you really believe in it, you've got warmth and passion, um, and, and it's not all about you. I think yeah. people are very much, you know, happy to get involved. So, but where, where did you start? Because I suppose people listening might think, I can't just call up Cherie Blair and ask if she wants to come to my summer fates. But was there a process or did you just knew someone who knew someone? Or Yeah, I think very often it's much easier to start by contacting someone who knows that person. And yeah. there's some people who are easy, they're low-hanging fruit that are easier to get. I think sometimes politicians are easier to get because they have to be seen serving the public. Mm. If you want to go to the head of a very big corporation like Apple or Facebook, they don't have to come to women's events. Yeah, if you know them and they like it. But I think really politicians are a good way to start because they need 
that coverage. And I think also a lot of people are looking for interesting things to do. So actually, if you say something that's really exciting for them, they will come. Yeah. There'll be a lot of people listening again that are scared and nervous and when it comes to networking as well. And I think you're one of the finest networkers I've ever seen, Pinky. Can you you offer any tips or advice as to how to... So you walk into a room... You don't necessarily know anybody, yeah. but you obviously you, you want to start up a conversation. Yeah. How do you do it? What would your advice be? Actually, I love walking into a room where I know no one. <laughs> Actually, that gives me a real spurt of energy because then I have this whole room full of people that I can get to know and mm-hmm. who may be interesting, some may be very dull. And I think it's really, it can be intimidating for people if everybody's in groups and you walk in and you don't know anyone, where do you break into a group? And I think really is to kind of position yourself near people who look as if they're quite bored with each other. You'll find that. (laughs) You can see that one person probably looking to see how can I get out of this conversation and then just start a conversation. And I think what really helps is asking people about themselves. What do you do? You don't, you know, and people love talking about themselves. If you start going in and saying, I'm so-and-so, I do this, it's not going to work that well. So I think it's very much putting the onus on other people and asking yeah. them. So be inquisitive. Absolutely, be curious. Um, and I, I always ask people, I met somebody the other day and I was at a party and it was like quite strange, but this girl, I started asking her, you know, how old her children were, what this, and she said, that's really kind of you to ask me about my children. Nobody ever does. And I thought to myself, how strange, I always ask people. So maybe people do things differently. Yeah, I think, I mean, going from my own experience, especially when you you have a career and you are ambitious and you want to carry on on that trajectory, as soon as you then throw family and children into the mix, yeah. it becomes harder. So I, I guess like she was saying, I don't know, maybe she doesn't want to talk about it, but yeah. do you think there is, I mean, how do you feel about women having families in the career, life balance? What was your experience? Or Well, I didn't have to have that choice because I didn't start working really full-time until my children were quite, you know, grown up, so mm. I didn't. But I think women, if they want to, they should be able to, mm. and they should be able to get all the support they want. I think it's really sad if you leave because you just don't get the support at work or in the family, or you feel intimidated by doing everything together. I think for those who want to, good for you. And I think everybody who works with us, we love to give them that flexibility because I think, you know, we're not going to really make a difference in the world unless we change it for women. We all know that. And I feel really sad because we've been hearing the same sound bites for so long as the people are talking, yeah, we're encouraging women and we're recruiting them, but it's the pyramid as they go up, yeah. they drop out. But I think you have to do something differently. If we do it the same way, it's not going to happen. No, absolutely. And I think, like you say, it's good that they're saying we need to make these changes. Yeah. We are kind of initiating these changes. But I think maybe it's leading by example. So, for example, when they put in shared parental leave for yeah. fathers and mothers, the, f- the CEO of a company needs to set the president. He Absolutely. needs to go and do that Absolutely. before anyone else is going to adopt it. Otherwise, it's a great idea that no one's adopting. Absolutely. So. There's a real danger there. And I think, again, you know, if uh, people are having children later, and mm. so therefore, you know, when they come back, if they take a few years off, the world changes. Mm. So I think, you know, we're living in fast-moving very fragile kind of economy where people feel very vulnerable. I'm so amazed the amount of women who actually come and they network, but when you start talking to them, and I talk to a lot of people on a personal level, mm. they just, their stories come out and there's such, you know, there's 
anxiety, there's, you know, am I good enough? And, mm. and, and I, I, you know, I think you have to feel you're good enough because if you don't, that self-belief is not there. You're never going to go anywhere. Yeah, 100%. I think also the, it's the effect on the economy as well, isn't it? When you're balancing the cost of childcare against having a job, think about where your job will take you in five years' time as, yes. a, you know, as, as not working at all. I mean, it's so hard, obviously, because there's an awful lot of emotional impact and things like that as well, so it's yeah. no easy fix. But I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day, and she is the head of a huge global brand, one of the biggest global brands. She's got triplets. And she says, you know, putting them into a nursery is crippling. Mm. So even at her level, mm. she can't really afford to put them into a nursery. So childcare has to be changed because if you can't get your children looked after, there's no way you're going to be able to perform well at work. Exactly. Just a few quick questions, just to kind of sum up. Um, what would you describe as your greatest success? I don't know whether I'd call it success. My children and my grandchildren, I think, are the best thing in my life. I think I spend time with them, and I'm very proud of my two sons and the way they conduct themselves. So I don't know whether you'd call that success, but that's the thing I feel most proud of. That's so lovely to hear, because I mean, everything that you've achieved in your working life and yet family is the most important. Absolutely. I think for me, my work would mean nothing if I didn't have my family at the heart of it. And I think a lot of people are like that. You can't, for me, there is no separation between work and family. And that's why I do a lot of my work in my home. So mm-hmm. I invite, I was talking to a woman just now this morning from Apple. She said, I'd love to meet up with you. She's doing some work in diversity. And I said, I said, will you come to my house on a Friday when I have my team here? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, and she said, Never had an invitation like that. And I said, well, you know, that's the way I do it. And so therefore, I think also if you want to really succeed in life, whatever that success is, you have to be yourself. Authenticity and being comfortable with what you're doing is so important. To be authentic is there. Yes, absolutely. Because um, it's a word we're using more and more. Sometimes I cringe at that. But for me... If I don't do what I'm comfortable with, there's no flow, and then people pick that up. There's no longevity to it either, is no, there? You can't, no, sustain, you can't sustain something no, that's a no, facade. No, no, If you tell me to sit in a room and not say a word to anybody because that's the way it has to be, well, don't count me in because I would die. You know? <laughs> so I'd rather not be somewhere where I can't actually have a conversation. Yeah. And People won't know this, but you do have your team round on a Friday. You cook for them, don't you? Every they're, they're, Friday. They're all here. Every you Friday. You cook lunch. Yes, I cook lunch. And then I also <laughs> tell other people who want to meet me to come on the Friday. So then they get to meet um, my team. We had a girl from the Women of Future, one of our um, last year's shortlist, and she said, I'd love to come for tea. I said, come for tea. So I set the table up for tea, and we had tea after having had lunch. Um, I went to the Argentinian embassy the other day for a business lunch, and so I've got three women from the embassy coming on a Friday. <laughs> and so I think it's really nice because people like coming yeah. where they're going to meet different people. So I think the real trick of being successful is how well you can put together people who are very diverse, who yeah. you wouldn't mean uh, meet otherwise. I think they call it the strength of weak ties. Yeah. So people, you know, we all try to go to people we know, but I think it's the people who you don't know that are going to give you those new ideas who are going to actually energise you in a different way. Yeah. I think it's also the environment, isn't it? It's the warmth you have in a home as compared to the sterile office space or wherever it is that you work. It's actually a different... It makes you feel relaxed, right? You actually feel better and things like that. So. 
And also, I think when people invite you into their home, in a way, subconsciously, you think they trust me, they like me, because mm. people don't want to invite people into private spaces where they're not comfortable with them. Yeah, and I true. think that also, in a way, before you've even come to someone's home, you think, oh, she must really like me to invite me over. And I love doing, you know, every time I do several lunches um, where I mix up all our women of the future. And we have one this summer coming up for the Asian women, but the list is so long. And I know if you invite 60 people, 30 will say yes and, you know, whatever. But I need to have about five of those because I find they are the best way to market what we do. We don't even have to do any marketing, just getting people to tell their stories about their experience with us. I've learned that that is my most you know, powerful marketing tool. Yeah. Speaks for itself. Absolutely. Okay. okay, so and what's your greatest failure? You know, I never think of anything as failure. I always think of that the way I wouldn't do that again. Mm. So I, I, I never see anything as a failure. I'm very much in that Edison and the light bulb. He didn't say they were all failures. He said those were ways of not doing it. So you, you, know. you learn from your experience. Yeah, I, learn, I don't think I, I find the word failure incredibly soul destroying because you feel I don't think you know there's no failure in life. No, I'm, I agree. After all these years, the mantra of Women of the Future program is kindness and collaborations. From 1999 to now, in 2019, it's a long time. But um, what does it mean to you now? What does kindness and collaboration mean to you? Has it changed or is it still the same? No, I think kindness is something that never changes. It's forever eternal. It's something that people, you know, uh, what goes from the heart goes to somebody else's heart. And so when people say, how do you define kindness? I think defining kindness is difficult. You just know when somebody's kind. Mm. You also know when somebody's unkind. And I think it's the most powerful tool we have to actually change our lives. Because if you look at ancient philosophers to people today, it's the kindness of others that makes our lives much better, enhances what we do, opens a door, actually makes us feel good when we're really down. So I think it's so intuitive, it's mm -hmm. so human. And yet we live in a world where sometimes kindness is seen as a softness, as a weak. You can't be successful if you're kind. And I take the totally reverse view. And I love it when very big, hard-hitting corporations are actually really energised by our mantra of kindness because it gives power to everyone from mm -hmm. the junior person right to the senior because it's an, an equaliser. Do, do you think it comes naturally, kindness? Or is it I think it does. I think adopt or...? No, I think, you know, I know when I feel, when I do something kind, I feel good. So there's a wonderful saying, the fragrance always stays in the hand that gives the rose. And so when nobody can feel good when they've been unkind. And I think it comes naturally. I think we work over time to perhaps suppress being too kind. You know, you think it'll be misconstrued. Mm. And, you know, we live in a society where everybody is passing judgment on others without really knowing all the facts. But I still think it's worth taking the risk. Every single time I will do kindness over nothing or unkindness. I mean, I would never do unkindness anyway, but sometimes you just take a part of, I won't do anything, I won't go. But I would still do kindness every single time. And it, my whole view about life is um, we're in it for the long game because we're all living much longer and people never forget kindness. So somebody who I've been nice to 20 years ago will all, even if they come into my life so many years down the line, will always remember that. And unkindness is also remembered. So I think it's our most powerful tool. 
I also remember when I went to the shortlist announcement last year for Women of the Future Awards, you said you should do something kind every day that can't be repaid. Yeah. So whether that's buying someone a cup of coffee yeah. or just doing something small. Yeah. But you should, you know, you should take on that notion and pay it forward, essentially, which I think is a lovely thing to do. Yeah. But I, I, I say that and I think everybody must know that and they must do it. But I'm, re- I'm so amazed that people don't really do that. So every day I leave the house five chocolates and I will give it to five people so yesterday I was in the company and the receptionist was so sweet she said are you pinky with a big smile and said do I mind you know here's a chocolate for you and here's a chocolate for the other reception because she was just sitting there and I think it really makes you feel and 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 she said this has really made my day and just the same with if you go into an office and somebody doesn't greet you very well Mm. It's not unkindness, but it doesn't make you feel good. So I think we also need to call it out. So when somebody's nice to me, I immediately tell them that and I feed back, even though they haven't asked for feedback today, I was talking to somebody at a hospital. She was really helpful. So I said, Mm. can you give me your email? I'd like to write an email saying thank you to you and you can show that to Mm. your boss. So it meant a little bit of effort, but it's so small. Because we're all really quick to complain, aren't we? We'll do it in a heartbeat, but when it actually comes to saying thank you for something, you don't do it, we don't do it. We don't actually say, oh, thank you, that was really lovely. Even just the smallest thing, those two words, we just don't do it. I'm really surprised and I'm very happy that obviously I work with people who take it very seriously. And so somebody recently, a computer guy, told me, he said, my God, somebody from your team came back and thanked me so profusely. Nobody does that. Mm. And that's interesting because that's just what you've said. But I think in the world, we live in worlds where we are attracted to people like ourselves or people who have the same values. And for me, the values of integrity, of kindness, of caring, of respect Mm. are absolutely without doubt the most important thing that we need at the heart of what we do and so the people I meet mostly are people like that because mm-hmm. I don't think you can resonate with people who have very different values. Yeah. Is, there, is there anything that scares you anymore? Fortunately no, I guess what scares me in, in and not where work and things, I, I think as a mother and a grandmother and a, you know, a wife you're always worried about your family mm-hmm. so I'm forever worrying about them in every little way Um, But no, I don't think so, because I think also have very deep underpinning faith in, I guess, a spiritual, religious faith that everything that's happened happens for a reason and it's the way we really look at it. And and I think, you know, whenever you've got good intentions, it's again a very ancient philosophy in Islam and Hinduism also that the law of intention and desire. So when you, you actually are have good intentions then good things happen mm. and sometimes things may go wrong but I think you know in the long run you realize why it did go wrong so very early in my career I lost so much of my hearing so I have so little hearing and I remember the beginning I thought to myself I love people I love talking and how can I carry on and this is you're talking about 25 years ago yeah. I don't know what gave me the courage to carry on but you know I got these hearing aids and I tell people up front and people become kinder because they realize you're vulnerable. And so I think it happened for a reason. It's made me much more sensitive to other people's disabilities, which we yeah. may not know. I think something ha- sometimes happens to you, which raises your awareness of others. Mm-hmm. So I think also I'm always conscious of the way somebody's treated me. And so 
if I think they've treated me less than nicely, it makes me aware as to maybe why. I won't yeah. condemn it, but I'll say maybe there was a reason, who knows where they were coming from. Yeah, I've, I've seen somewhere where they said sometimes you think quiet people are insolent or they're just rude, but sometimes yeah. they've actually got their own insecurities mm-hmm. and you need to, you know, like you've just said, you know, you need to bear in mind that there might be more to it than actually... Than actually meets the eye. And, you know, everybody has a story and I'm so privileged to meet so many people who trust what we do, so they open up with their stories and mm-hmm. sometimes they don't want to because then... It exposes them. Yeah. You know, some people don't mind being exposed, some people yeah. do. But I think the best way to really make people come together is, is bringing diverse lots together. So I love it when I go to a place and I actually stand up there and speak for 100 people and say, if anybody wants to come to my house, just email me. And you'd be surprised, you know, there will be a lot of people, but not as many as you would expect. And that's because some of them felt, oh, I don't have the courage, she said that, maybe mm-hmm. she didn't mean it. And yet when they do come and they meet other people and they go off and have their own... Nothing pleases me more than somebody who's been part of our network, who's gone off and done amazing things with somebody else from the network and I don't even know about it. Mm. And that... And I don't want to be part of every narrative. And so it's letting people go and I think that comes probably with age and, (laughs) and, you know, you kind of realise that you can't hold on to everybody, that every thing you've done is not your victory. It's mm. actually so many people have played a part in the result. Mm. And I realised I've got a fantastic team and everything I do really is because they are the most incredible supportive mm. people that I know. But going back to your, to your hearing, were you scared then? When, was, I, it, was it an illness? Or? I would, no, no. That's, you'd have been, it would have been easier if it was an illness because yeah. then you think that's what caused yeah. it. So when it first started... Going, I thought to myself, oh, it's probably a virus and you know, it'll come back. Mm-hmm. And actually when I went for an audiology test, he said, no, it's nerve deafness. Uh-huh. And um, you have to wear hearing aid. And I think the first thing with hearing is everybody who has a hearing problem doesn't want to acknowledge it. So you say, you wear hearing aid, but you put it off and say, look, I can manage without mm-hmm. it. But mine's so bad that if I take my two hearing aids off, I will not hear anything. Really? So in the night when I go to sleep and if the phone rings, there's just no way. Wow. So this scares me as if I'm in a hotel and I'm, you know, I've got a meeting the next morning. I actually have to leave a message at the reception to say, can you wake me up if I don't pick up the phone? Can you come? And I give you permission to open the door and shake me because otherwise <laughs> I won't be. So I remember I was in Africa in Nairobi and they were you know, trying to call me and I hadn't given this message you know, to them. I didn't pick up the phone and they were worried. So suddenly there were two of these men standing, but there were two of them because they said one couldn't come because of right, uh, yeah, the requirement. Yeah. They were both standing over me and waking me up. And <laughs> so, you know, it, it can be quite scary because... You so know, you I'm, woke up with two men standing over I know, above me, and I'm thinking, who are they? And I never... And so it was... They two had to be there, so one couldn't yeah. come in case... And also, what, the one thing that does scare me is something happens to my hearing aid. Right. What would I do? You know, so I have like a spare pair with me all the time yeah. because I wouldn't be able to have a conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm type 1 diabetic and I always panic about yeah. not having my pens or if they break. You know, when you go on a holiday, you're like, oh, they can yeah. break in the luggage or whatever. Yeah, so it's the same kind of thing. So, you could yeah. be reliant on them, really, aren't yeah. you? It's no, a function. You Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's not something, you know, like if I'm saying some things you can pick up but uh, somewhere else if you're on holiday, but nobody's going to make me a pair of hearing aids mm. in, uh, uh, you know, in, in a week or whatever. So it, you know, I think people don't... And you, you overcome it by looking at the good things you've got in life and, mm. and how you can take an attitude that 
well, how do I make the best of it? So, yeah. you know, several things have gone wrong with me so often, but, you know, it's kind of, I, in 2002, I had Bell's palsy, which is oh, a right. bit like, you look as if you've like had a stroke, stroke yeah. but it's not a stroke, it's like, a, um, it's the same virus that causes shingles and chickenpox. Right. So it normally happens, in, at this time of the year, there's chickenpox yes. around, so if you run down, you can get shingles or Bell's palsy. Yeah. And it was so debilitating because we had the Asian Women of Achievement Award. And I, I mean, you, you dribble and you, you're, you know, your mouth looks very mm. funny. You can't, people like, feel real sorry. And I remember, I've never forgotten the kindness. Uh, I went to the Asian Women of Achievement Award, but I couldn't make the speech. And mm. people would come and say, have you had a stroke? But the two people who were there at the awards with me, and I will never, ever forget how kind they were, was Tessa Jowell, who's one of the kindest people I have ever met mm. in my life. And she was then actually cabinet minister for um, culture, mm -hmm. art, and, and there was Sherry Blair, and they were both holding my hand, saying, mm -hmm. it's amazing you've come, that I could have easily stayed at home thinking everybody yeah. will look at me and say, what's wrong with you? There's the solidarity but in that moment, it's just, amazing. you know, just holding your hand. They you know, were holding my just, hand yeah. throughout, saying, well done, you're here, and, and, and you know, Tessa was, you know, cabinet minister, but was there mm. just being... Inst I always, when I think of kindness, I think of her, because mm. she's one person. I think being kind is also replying to people. So when you send somebody an email, it's respectful to reply, but as busy as she was, she would always reply. Sherry will reply immediately. And to me, that shows respect, respect and kindness. Yeah, absolutely. I think also you said there was a funny story about your hearing where someone asked you, was it your, what your favourite curry was? Or yeah, no, somebody asked me, you know, how long do you take to make a curry? Oh, and okay. I heard, how long have you been in the country? <laughs> so I said, 37 <laughs> years or something. And then the other day, it was terrible. Um, somebody said to me her mother had gone on holiday. And I heard, she said, my mother went on holiday and she had a ball. And I, she'd actually said she had a fall. And I said, oh, how wonderful. And she kind of looked at me as if to say, <laughs> you know. And so I kind of realised I had made a mistake. So I said, sorry, could you say that again? And so you give, uh, give so many totally wrong answers. So that's why it's nice to tell people up front. You get the humour part, you know, the humour is part, that's how you deal with it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you have to, you know, I mean, you're mortified, you know, I'm saying, God, your mother had a fall, how wonderful, you know, kind <laughs> of thing. And, okay. and, and so she's, and also, you know, people, and there have been lots of those kind of incidents yeah. which I laugh about, which, um, you know, in the whole, having done this for so long, there's so many amazing stories of, of people going out of the way of kindness, mm. of opening a door. There's a wonderful saying also, saying, uh, it's good to give when asked, but better to give unasked to understanding. So if we can spend 10 minutes every day thinking, how, who can I help? And they talk about loneliness being the worst disease of our yeah. time. Just inviting somebody in for a coffee or telling someone. Every time the Sainsbury's person, every week I get a delivery, I will never let any of them go away without giving them a biscuit or a chocolate. And sometimes <laughs> I'm cooking, and I said, do you want to take a little bit of a takeaway? And so the guy comes back and he, and he says, oh, my wife said, are you going to that Indian lady again? Maybe she'll give you something. And I think they're not used to that. No, not at all. So I always say, look, yes, I've got this lovely Spanish chocolate somebody's brought me, or here's something. So you must get regular delivery drivers, so, but they're queuing up so to come they're to like, It's really nice because, you know, that's the way yeah. um, I think you, you know, you show people you care. 
you really are quite remarkable. Do you acknowledge that? You know, because you're just one of a kind. I mean, everything you're saying makes yeah. perfect sense, and it's, it gives me a lovely, warm feeling. But not everybody is. But that I'm kind surprised of because for me it comes so naturally. So yeah. I think it's it's not that I'm making an effort to do this, and yeah. so therefore I think it must come naturally to everybody. But then I meet people who say, "Oh, I'm terrified of inviting people to my home, mm. or I haven't had anybody ever." for dinner for the last two years or yeah, something. Yeah. And I must have, like, you know, at least four times a week people coming and going. And, if you know, last week Gemma and Alexis were working here, so we had lunch together, and Friday this thing came, and then somebody came for tea on Saturday. And I think, you know, you, I always look at ways of doing things differently because mm. I, I'm also I get bored very easily, and that's why <laughs> I'm always thinking of new things for the awards. So we're doing the kindness list in Singapore, one of the new ideas we've had, which I hope we'll be able to, it's the Commonwealth is, I think, something we need to be looking at. 53 countries, very young population, what's happening with Brexit. We should all be thinking of how we can help these women in the Commonwealth in some way. And we've got an amazing platform. I mean, it, I would be so proud to introduce any of them to you because mm. you're inspiring, you're warm, you're, you've got amazing listening skills. They would feel very honoured to meet you. So how are we going to... So we want to do an award this year, which will be uh, Women from the Commonwealth. So anybody who's maybe in England, but maybe going back from doing a PhD or doing a project, they can enter, and I think that would be wonderful for them. They would meet our network here, and they'd become our ambassadors in those countries. And we're now creating this platform, like a connecting platform, we're going to be using so people will be able to connect if they're women of the future so i think with linkedin and with all that facebook you know you get so many requests mm. so i looked at how many contacts i have the other day in my linkedin i don't even use it i've got 3800 or something i'm saying every week i get 100 requests but i don't even know half of them so i don't really and that's not people are just reaching out so there's no it, you're not using that but i think if everybody says the woman in Cambodia or the woman in Brunei connects to women of the future in yeah. the UK, you're more likely to respond. You know, also it's who introduces you. I'm not very discerning, so I'll kind of say yes to anyone kind of thing, but there are people who will look and say, is this kosher? Mm. So I, I really think we want to look at ways where we can connect more people so that there's generation of ideas. And I think there's nothing to substitute for the warmth of, it, of somebody you can have a chat with. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, like if somebody sends me an email and I see their phone number there, and instead of emailing back something, I'll just pick up the phone. Mm. So nobody does that. No. And I think if younger people see others doing it and think it's okay. Mm. You need to lead by example again, don't you? Again, you know, then you think it's okay. And I think, but again, one word of caution, I think, you know, the whole thing with emotional intelligence is to be able to judge when it's right to ask, when it's right to keep quiet, yes. when it's, you know, when should you wait. Yes. And I think that comes intuitively to some people. It comes with maturity. It comes with experience. Yeah, I agree. Very much so. I mean, not that I want you to stop, but I mean, is there anything left on your to-do list, Pinky? You probably should be winding down, no? Is it kind of ramping up instead? Definitely not. Uh, I don't want to hang up my boots. I always think there's going to be something more we can do. The ideas will come from, you know, our networks, from people who want to do things and maybe don't have the capacity to. And I think it goes back to collaboration. Mm. So how do we work? 
together with people because I can't do everything on my own. We're a very small organization. We're tiny, tiny. And I think, you know, that we've got so far is there but for the grace of God go you and I. And I realize, and the one thing, you know, I message I really also want to get out to so many people is the thing that people should always be aware of is being arrogant. I think, you know, it's absolutely the opposite of kindness is when you're arrogant. Mm -hmm. And yet so many people, when they're on top of the mountain, have reason to feel they can get away with arrogance. But remember when you're on top of the mountain, the only way you can is yeah. come down. And people don't, you don't see that because everybody is paying you tribute and telling you you're wonderful. And it, you know, never take those kind of things seriously. I think we all love accolades, but I think really in your heart of hearts, you should know, mm. you know, that silent voice will tell you. And there's nothing worse that people, I mean, the quality I'm, kind of a bore in people is arrogance. I think humility is something that is so, it's warming, it's comforting, it's very endearing. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, it's, there's arrogance and there's confidence, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you shouldn't yeah. confuse the two, but like you say, it's the old adage of be nice to the people you meet on the way up, because you're sure as hell meeting Absolutely. them on the way back down again. And you know, it's funny because so many people that I, uh, this year the Asian Women of Achievement, we were just so thrilled we had, one of our first winners was there and she presented an award. She's a real rock star in the medical field. Her name is Dame Purveen Kumar. Just amazing. And she came and um, presented an award. And that's 20 years. And there's not many networks where people keep in touch. I think, you know, what we really need is in life is, you know, one must look for long-term relationships. And they can only be sustained with a lot of endeavor and personal, you know, kind of, you actually take time. If you don't take time to be in touch with people, relationships are like plants. If you don't water them, they die. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's, people don't say, oh gosh, you managed to keep in touch. And, I mean, I managed to keep in touch with a lot of people, but there's so many people that have dropped off now because the network has become wider and wider. And I can't remember everyone's name the way I used to, because then I knew 20 people, so I knew everybody about, everything about everybody. But I still, and I still, what excites me, Kim, is when I go out and meet an interesting people, person and say, how can we use them? Sometimes you meet, like, CEOs of companies, and, and you say, how, you know, they're so involved in their business, they have a big agenda. How can we get them involved with us? And there's also the weakest need the strong, and the strongest need the weak. I think also the one thing I feel very strongly about now is how careful we have to be before we shoot out social media because it can ruin lives and we have to be much more circumspect about mm. the way we, you know, behave on social media. I mean, we were talking earlier about how authenticity is a buzzword. How do you feel about things like mindfulness and, you know, the, the kind of the trends that are happening nowadays with mental health and things like that? Do you think, obviously, kindness and mindfulness, and it's, they're all linked, really, aren't they? They are, really. So. If you're not mindful, you wouldn't be kind. You can't just be kind without being aware of and being mindful of others. Mm. And it's so easy when you start going down that path. So, you know, it starts off as a competent, that you have to work on. You know, mm. I'm going to be nice, I'm going to be pay a compliment. So you're consciously doing it. And then it starts flowing, and so you do it without really thinking. Yeah. Um, but the main thing is to really do it so that it absolutely just flows without, it needs no um, subconscious thought even, it just goes through. So you say, how do I really think about other people every day? Mm. And I know we have to think of ourselves, we have to look after ourselves. But I think that people have become very self 
obsessed and you know they're, 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 you and you meet so many people and you think oh she's so self-absorbed and you know they even if they pretend not to be they kind of take a very cursory interest in what you're doing but they're just waiting for you to finish till they put in mm. what they know and I, I mean I laugh at social media there's so many people who put their I went here so humbled and honoured to get this award. I think this humbled and honoured doesn't <laughs> go together. You know, they basically, why would you put it on social media? I got this award, I'm humbled and honoured. See, I got this award, I'm really so delighted yeah, because yeah. I've worked so hard and it's a wonderful act. Say, I'm humbled and honoured. Yeah. I, I, we had such a laugh about humbled and honoured. Yeah. It, it makes me laugh as well. People say, oh, you're really lucky. And you think, well, it's amazing how hard I have to work to be lucky. Because like you were saying earlier, lucky, you know, it isn't, there is an element of luck to oh, everything. Huge, but you huge. do have to work hard you to, have to have these opportunities come your way, don't you? Absolutely. So, and, and I think, you know, what also we need to be much more creative in the way we think of how we do things. So even though I'm... I'm, um, I'm much older, so diversity is great. I can pick up and um, tick the box from being older. But I still think it doesn't stop creativity. It, mm. You know, I, I can do it in a different way, whereas other people would be creative maybe with technology. So I, I think, you know, whatever stage of life you're at, you know, there are things that work for you at that stage. Mm. So, you know, we love the vivacity and energy and passion of young people mm. because they they think, you know, there's a wonderful saying by Rumi, I think, which says, um, when I was young, I thought I could change the world. Now I'm older, I know I can only change myself. That's and that's so true because really, ultimately, you know, we're not going to be able to change anybody. It's only the way we look at it. And I love young people because they say, oh, they're not scared of anything. They've never had too many things that have not worked. As you get older, you get much more circumspect. You lose people you know, you've had illnesses, your family. And so therefore, you're much more measured. Mm. Um, but I still think one shouldn't lose passion, and, you know, energy and enthusiasm. I, I love, I hate meeting cold you know, like sterile people who kind of almost you have to, like, extracting teeth to get some kind of enthusiasm <laughs> or a compliment yeah. for th from them. So, no, it, it, it's a wonderful journey. Like, I was really excited about you coming today because I, you know, I really look forward to it. And, um, you know, you, you're just so amazing in the way you, the energy you radiate. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you very much for agreeing to do it. It's been such a pleasure listening to you. No, well, thank you. No, you haven't eaten anything. Can I make you a sandwich or something? <laughs> no, fine, thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.